Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network, um, New Books in Native American Studies. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network, um, New Books in Native American Studies. Uh, my name is James Mackay, uh, and I'm here with uh, Professor David J. Carlson. Uh, Professor Carlson is a full professor of English and currently the chair of the English department at California State University, San Bernardino. Um, He has a background and research interests in American Indian literatures, colonial, colonial and early national American literature, science fiction and critical theory. And the book that we're here to talk about today is called Imagining Sovereignty, Self-Determination in American Indian Law and Literature. Uh, so, David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, James. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and I should mention for um, uh, complete transparency that David Guy also co-edit a journal together, um, but that's not what we're talking about today. Right. Um, so could you just give uh, our listeners a general idea of who you are and how you first came to work in Native American studies? I understand that you yourself are not Native. Correct. Correct. Um, well, let's see. I think uh, I mean I have a PhD in in American literature from Indiana University, um, which I got uh, finished about seventeen, eighteen years ago. In terms of how I, I came to uh, work in Native Studies, I think there are two or three different um, inspirational sources that fed into that. Um, I guess one. One would be a course that I took as an undergraduate student, actually. I, I minored in, in religion as an undergraduate, and I took a wonderful class on American Indian religions and religious traditions from uh, Chris Vesey at Colgate University. And Chris has done a lot of, a lot of interesting work on um, Anishinaabe, Ojibwe religious practices on sort of in, uh, uh, both traditional and syncretic, kind of uh, connecting Catholicism with, with traditional practices. And it was just an eye-opening course for me um, to, to see – uh, radically different, complex ways of comprehending the world, our place in it, um, uh, you know, human ethics, the the sort of um, threads that tie communities together. Both, and I think for Indigenous people, those communities are both, um, uh, uh, I suppose, what what Westerners would call human and 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 animal and natural and environmental. Um, so that was that was an inspirational course for me. Then I, I came back to Native Studies as a graduate student, sort of through the other side, uh, in studying um, American literature, particularly colonial and early American literature. I was I was continually struck by the ways in which Indigenous peoples were were represented um, in those literatures, and, and I didn't have a language for it at that time. But you know what I see now is what I was what I was seeing was the literary side of what we now call settler colonialism. Um, uh, the ways in which um, indigenous people have been um, uh, systematically and instrumentally um, displaced, 
uh, oppressed, dominated um, by Western societies. And and I, I knew those representations were fundamentally wrong, um, but I couldn't quite articulate how they were wrong. And that sort of led me into the traditions themselves, sort of starting to learn about um, uh, learn about native literatures, learn about um, indigenous societies, indigenous communities. And then um, I think the the third thread that then pulled me into the specific kind of work I do now is um, is a theoretical lens. Uh, you know, I was I was studying a lot of um, New historicism uh, at that time period. This is thinkers, thinkers like uh, like Michel Foucault, and um, thinking that comes out of people like Marx, and um, particularly interested in the ways in which um, <clears throat> we as individuals and societies are subjected to um, <clears throat> power structures that are often invisible to us. Um, you know, in a Marxist tradition, people would call that ideology. Um, the new historicist would just simply tend to call it power or discourse. And I was reading, um, I was reading Alexis de Tocqueville's, uh, classic democracy in America and reading some of his thoughts about law. And, uh, he has this, this wonderful quote about law that actually, I think I would like to, to share briefly, um, in democracy in America. And he, he actually writes, um, in the United, he's talking about the United States. He writes, while the language of the law has, has become in some measure a vulgar tongue, the spirit of the law, which is produced in the schools and the courts of justice, gradually penetrates beyond their walls into the bosom of society. And, and for me, that that quote sort of opened up a, a, an intense interest in mine of mine in thinking about law, the language of law, um, the institutions of law, and how those structures, ideas, ways of understanding who we are as people, how we interact, how that permeates into society in ways that are complicated and. Tying that together with my interest in sort of colonialism and Native American studies, what I started looking at was essentially legal discourses, the, the legal discourse around indigenous people, U.S. Indian law, how that's been constructed, how that's been used over the past three centuries, and how um, indigenous people have responded to that. So is, that uh, is that a reasonable answer for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with law and literature, um, obviously, particular structures indigenous people's experiences. So would you talk a little more, more about that? Um, yeah, I, I, I lost a, a little bit of what you said. I think you said, um, talk about how the law structures indigenous people and their experiences. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, well, th there's, there are, I guess, a number of facets here. And I think it's, while it's, it's dangerous to generalize globally, um, there are some, I suppose, broad patterns. And obviously most of my work focuses in a U.S. context I look a little bit in a in a Canadian context now, but you know, broadly speaking, um, the the legal apparatus around indigenous peoples in in uh, Western uh, democracies uh, largely derives from um, you know originally from the Middle Ages, frankly, from the Law of Crusades, um, legal structures that were designed to legitimize the conquest uh, and dispossession of people deemed to be fundamentally different. From Europeans, whether from a religious perspective, cultural perspective, um, and the the sort of law, what, what comes to be known as the law of discovery, the kind of legal apparatus that underpins um, colonization in the New World, grows out of that medieval heritage. I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that uh, that Spain was one of the uh, you know leading uh, frontline sort of powers in both in terms of the um, 
colonial uh, uh, occupation, so to speak, and 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 um, uh, uh, manipulation, I suppose, or of of the New World, but also in the kind of legal structure. The the, the Spanish had just finished, essentially, just finished expelling the Moors from um, uh, from the territory of Spain, right when they turned their eyes to the New World, and they essentially translated. Uh, some of that legal apparatus into a new world context. So, so I think one facet here is the 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 law of discovery tends to, and I, and I should say the law of discovery is still a part of the U.S. legal system. It still is um, embedded in our thinking, our understanding about indigenous peoples through some key Supreme Court decisions in the 19th century, uh, the Cherokee cases um, decided by uh, John Marshall's Supreme Court. Um, but that that law of discovery essentially um, makes it distinguish between civilized people and quote, you know, quote civilized people, quote savage people. Um, it makes distinctions between the kind of um, possessory rights that you have over land. Um, broadly speaking, uh, civilized people, quote unquote, have superior rights to take and hold land um, as as property, um, as as real estate, um, and it it also uh, limits in fundamental ways, consequently, the the ability to um, determine your own political and social destiny uh, on the part of, of of native peoples, and that's that's the, the the dimension that we talk about in relation to the concept of sovereignty, right? Well, I think I mean sovereignty is is a, is a concept that has a long heritage and and is used in multiple ways. Uh, I mean it's 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 initially it's really rooted in. Um, uh, Early modern legal traditions, I would say, and um, initially in sort of rebellions against uh, the the authority of the universal church. So it initially emerges as a way for I think nation states as they're developing to define themselves as discrete um, political entities that have their own authority, their own control over territory and people. So it's uh, so I think it, it's fundamentally tied to uh, the emergence of modern nation states in, in that respect, um, but. It, it it gets inflected in different ways. I mean, I, th- I think in some contexts, it's it's really inflected as 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 an idea that talking about essentially power over people, so to speak. Um, who has authority? Who has legal authority? What entities have legal authority to um, impose rules or order or our punishments on others? Uh, where does that power reside, so to speak? Is 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 what we're talking about when we're talking about sovereignty and. Um, you know, so in an indigenous context, uh, in, the, in the United States in particular, I think the, the key precedent here is um, the uh, the Marshall case, uh, one of the, Mar- the Marshall Cherokee cases that designates Native peoples in the United States as what he calls domestic dependent nations. And essentially what he means by that is that these are autonomous groups that we recognize, autonomous communities um, that are uh, political entities but are not nation states in an equivalent way to the United States. So what, what Marshall's decision, what Marshall's uh, decision sort of designates as a legal status for indigenous peoples is fundamentally they're, they're a bit like wards of the state. Uh, they have um, authority over themselves, but that authority can be superseded by uh, the United States uh, government, essentially. And that, that uh, pattern has played out historically in um, <clears throat> uh, Congress, has asserted, and this has been validated by the Supreme Court, something called plenary power, which essentially says that Congress can 
Congress can do anything it wants to uh, fundamentally in relation to um, uh, the tribal peoples that live within um, the borders of the United States in terms of, of uh, <clears throat> limiting authority, um, shaping tribal governments. Uh, now, that that use of that power has ebbed and flowed historically, largely as a result of political pressures, um, activism. But but as a strictly as, as a strict matter of law, um, indigenous tribal communities in the United States right now could be abolished by legal fiat. Um, now, that, does that mean they would cease to exist as communities? No, but they would certainly cease to exist as recognized legal entities. Um, and there is a history in the United States um, in the 1950s and 60s, a uh, policy called termination that actually did uh, with some tribal communities um, eliminate them as political political entities. So I, I think I may have drifted a little bit off, off your question, but but again, I think broadly speaking, um, I think sovereignty is is a is um, from a Western perspective, it's the idea of where <coughs> power resides within a political structure, power that can be used to organize society, regulate society, or peoples. Um, I think the way indigenous communities uh, have have reinterpreted sovereignty um, or adapted that concept, grasped onto it, is to try to turn that around and and and. Think about sovereignty in relation to the concept of self-determination, the idea that that uh, the, the legal and political idea of sovereignty should underpin the, the notion that we recognize the rights of communities to determine their own fate and their own destiny. So, so I think indigenous, a lot of indigenous communities are using the word sovereignty, asserting their own sovereignty, not in the sense that they're trying to um, take power over others, but in the sense that they're trying to take power back in order to um, shape their own political destiny. So does that, does that give you enough, James? Um, I mean, indigenous peoples, you quote a couple of theorists, Russell Lawrence, Walsh, and Teaki Alfred, who both say that sovereignty as a European concept is not useful for indigenous peoples or self-understanding. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I think there's this is part of, I think, a long standing argument in, in Native studies. Um, you know, I, I think within the field, I, I think it's fair to say that most, if not everyone working in the field is is broadly committed to the idea that um, decolonization is sort of the fundamental goal of Native studies, right? Doing work that supports the ability of indigenous communities to sustain themselves, to um, resist ongoing pressures, ongoing colonial pressures. What the arguments have tended to be about is about tactics, so to speak, and sort of what, what strategies are the most effective to, to use along those lines. And, and there's one school of thought, and, and Alfred is, is a, a key voice in that. There are many others, people like Glenn Coulthard, um, I, people like Audra Simpson, uh, I suppose people like uh, Mark Rifkin. There are a lot of others who sort of think this way. Um, and I think for legitimate reasons, what they what they worry about is that is essentially the, the I'll paraphrase uh, from another literary tradition. You can't use the master's tools to deconstruct the master's house. Right. Um, and uh, I think um, if if the argument is that. I want to put it this way. I, I, I think if, if my argument were that indigenous people should adopt Western legal structures um as their own and simply uh, adapt to those structures in a, in a very um, uh, you know, uncreative way, 
then then I think Afro would be right. You know, that if, if that essentially is colonization, that's simply accepting these structures that have been imposed on you, structures that are going to potentially fundamentally change the way you think about yourself and your communities. Um, I, I don't think that's the way most tribal communities or many tribal communities sort of use the idea of sovereignty. I think there's actually a lot of creativity um, out in Indian country in terms of thinking about how this concept that that has a Western origin sh- for sure um, can be reinterpreted, reunderstood um, through an indigenous lens, through the lens of an indigenous worldviews or indigenous political practices. So I, I think I think people like Alfred sometimes um, underestimate or underplay the ways in which uh, you know putatively alien concepts can be um, uh, creatively reused, sort of within indigenous communities. Uh, by the same t- at the same time, I also think there's a, a kind of practical or pragmatic uh, um, dimension here too, which is that um, the, the the power of the U.S. state in relation to uh, indigenous communities, the power disparity is is enormous, and to some degree, I think most tribal communities are are obliged to work with and within some of those structures, at least to some degree, right? As, as a tactic, maybe not as a sort of long-term goal, but, but a recognition that, that uh, you know, the, the, the legal structures, the political structures that you have to deal with right now are the ones in front of you. And so to, to opt out of those structures completely because they are, are um, not uh, part of your historical traditions, I think is a risky, uh, a risky political strategy to take. So that, I guess that would be my, my two responses that as, as a tactic, um, if not a long-term goal, sovereignty has, has utility, uh, but also that I think um, indigenous people um, make use of the concept in complicated ways. And let me maybe give you one, one quick example of that sort of creative reuse. Uh, and, and this is somebody I talk about in the book a little bit, um, Vine Deloria, uh, really important uh, writer, uh, legal thinker, political leader, religious thinker. Um, starts writing, started writing in the 1960s, hugely influential in, in Indian country and thought for you know, 30 or 40 years and, and into today. Um, and in his book, uh, We Talk, You Listen, he's writing a lot about sort of the U.S. Constitution and constitutionalism. And he focuses particularly on, on the preamble, uh, you know, that, that famous language, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. And, and one of the things he does in his argument is, is sort of point out that for um, – most Americans, I suppose, people like myself growing up with the kind of civics education I had, when I hear we the people, I probably think um, we as a group of autonomous individuals who sort of come together um, in temporary ways and limited ways to do certain things politically, right? We, th- we think of the people as a, um, an amalgamation of the fundamental political unit, which is the autonomous individual, right? That's, that's the core of American individualism. What, what um, Deloria points out is that for indigenous communities, the people themselves are the starting fundamental unit so that, that an indigenous person can actually make use of that constitutional language. But in fact, when they use it, they're using it differently. Um, and, and to a degree, that meeting point, that, that, that debate about what do we mean by people? Um, how, do, how do we understand the relationship between the individual and the collective? That becomes a point of contact between um, indigenous political traditions and non-indigenous political traditions. And that's a place where maybe something can happen, something interesting can happen in, in terms of innovation, or at least space can be carved out for, for different modes of governance and political organization 
you know, at the local level. Um, you know, I'm not sure that some some native tribal communities, I think, would would love to be fully autonomous uh, in, in every sense, the, the equivalent of, I guess you could say, nation states. Um, many, many would not. And I think many would actually say that, that that kind of move would be antithetical to their understanding of their own political structures and maybe also just impossible to achieve in terms of, of contemporary um, population levels and resource levels. So, so again, I, I think there, there's a lot of examples of, of ways in which um, creative people, uh, political leaders, legal leaders, writers, um, individual citizens, individual tribal members within Indian country, I think are, are recognized that, um, again, these putatively alien traditions um, can be can be used and manipulated in ways, can be indigenized would be, be, be a better way for you to put that, or at least have the potential to do that. And I think that's true. And, and again, I, and I think that would probably be the fundamental difference between myself and somebody like Alfred, who's, I think, I think uh, very skeptical that that indigenization can happen in a, in a significant way. And you, you talk about Denoria as sort of emerging from a, a vox populi tradition in American Indian thought. Could you talk a little bit about that as well, about and Costa? Oh yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think part of Deloria is, is sort of um, someone who is emerging at a at a moment. You know, that moment, the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, is is I think the the beginning of the real emergence of the kind of contemporary, um, I guess what you could call indigenous public sphere, sort of at, at, a, at, a, at a broad level. Um, you have, uh, I mean, I talk a little bit about Rupert Costo, who was um, uh, Kawea, uh, re, uh historian, uh, researcher, uh, publisher, published the first uh, national uh, Native American um, uh, newspaper, essentially called, called uh, Wasaja, which is named after a, an earlier, Carlos Montezuma's earlier newsletter. Um, and, and people like Costo and people like like Delory, I think, were instrumental in creating um, a. I, I don't, some people would have called this pan-Indian. I guess I'm not sure if I, if I want to use that term, but a, a kind of broad um, uh, community of of political consciousness, political thought um, that cuts across and unites um, indigenous people across different tribal um, uh, affiliations, so or tribal identities. So, you know, there have been moments, of course, where I think, uh, and, and, the, and these sort of start in response to colonialism, U.S. colonialism in the early 20th century. But these, these earlier moments, I think, really flourish in the 1960s, where suddenly um, an indigenous person who is, who is Diné or, or Navajo, as, as, as uh, perhaps more commonly known to uh, non-indigenous people, or, or Anishinaabe, think of themselves not just as, as um, members of their own tribal community, tribal culture, but think of themselves as indigenous in a broader uh, political sense, recognize the kind of commonalities of the way that they have encountered and have to deal with the power of the settler state. So um, that that emergence um, of this, I guess, national discourse, national print culture, national public sphere coincides, probably not coincidentally, with the um, grabbing onto concepts like sovereignty and self-determination as ways in which, uh, you know, indigenous peoples can organize themselves politically. And again, not just at the local level, but at, at the national level and, you know, by extension over time at the, at the international level, this is, this has moved, you know, this, the, the discourse of sovereignty and self-determination um, 
has has extended into international law too, with the um, you know pressure to uh, get the international community to recognize and acknowledge the um, the rights of indigenous communities. And you know the current sort of uh, culmination of that is the UN's um, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is a kind of sovereignty text. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it thinks about sovereignty in very particular ways, but the, the political activism that created UNDRIP, um, which is a terrible acronym, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the political pressure that created that derives from that that construction of of this broad um, public sphere that that is is now it's an international public sphere, right? I mean, I think in Indigenous studies today we have. Um, writers and theorists in North America talking about significant parallels that they see between their political struggles and experiences and um, the, uh, the experiences of the Pal- of Palestinians, for example. This, is, this has become a kind of globalized discourse, um, which th- this would take us down a long rabbit hole, which, which I think in the long run is going to complicate um, how effectively sovereignty itself is going to function as the sort of um, key term of innovation. I, I suspect we're going to move beyond sovereignty in the next few decades to something else, some other um, framing concept for thinking about decolonization. Yeah, and you finished the first half of your book, which is a discussion of sovereignty, with uh, the work of John Mohawk and the Iroquois idea of sort of an ethics of sovereignty. Uh, could, you, could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I, I think that that would be another example of... Uh, Again, what I what I see as that sort of innovation that you see within um, within indigenous um, you know political and philosophical traditions to take um, to take ideas that that um, might be inflected in a particular way from a, a sort of Western political tradition um, use those same terms but but fundamentally um, re, you know redefine them. So I, I think um, again in, in a in a I think a way that this that this plays out in interesting ways, I think, would be when you, when you think about a discourse of of rights, right, um, political rights, and in a in a in a kind of Western liberal political tradition, particularly as it's as it's developed in the United States, um, you know, rights are are the concept of rights is tied to the notion of the autonomous individual. It's tied fundamentally to issues of property, private property. Um, you know, we think about even our intangible rights, things like um, privacy, right? We think of those as, as, as more analogous to property rights than to other, you know, other kinds of um, uh, qualities that inhere in us and people as people. And what what um, Mohawk does in his own political theorization, um, and and what I love about, about writers like Mohawk is is that you know on the surface what he's his his essays are, are deceptively simple, right? Um, but when you actually dive into them, they're they're tremendously profound and tremendously complicated. What what Mohawk sort of points out is that your your identity as an individual who possesses what we might call sort of rights, so to speak, within um, within the the political tradition, political community that he comes from, is tied to the idea of of being. Um, I mean, he would call it to being a good person, which sounds, again, sounds facile in a way from a, from a Western perspective. It sounds like a greeting card uh, 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 phrase. But uh, in an Iroquois tradition, it's, it's, that's a tremendously complicated concept. Um, your, your peoplehood, your personhood, 
um, how that relates to your your place within community, your roles, your responsibilities. And so, um, again, when you're thinking about something like like rights within that um, political community, you're thinking about it in a very different way um, than you than you would be in uh, in a in a typical sort of uh, liberal Western, I think, political um, political sense. And I think what what writers like Mohawk, you know, who, who writes essays in English for people like us to read, um, I, I think one of the things that that Mohawk is is trying to do is to point out that within our own political tradition, within the, the political traditions of even settler colonial states, there are spaces in which um, we can rethink our own sense of ourselves and how we understand and define our own communities. That essentially um, um, the liberal political systems that underpin both U.S. democracy and U.S. settler colonialism can be rethought from within and can be rethought from within frankly, through indigenous political concepts. Um, and I think that's a powerful, uh, a powerful insight, you know, and, and, I, and I don't mean to sort of suggest that uh, writers like, Mo- like Mohawk, their, their primary project is to, you know, um, save the United States from itself. Um, but, but I think, uh, I mean, in some ways, I don't think that's, that's, that's an inaccurate statement that, uh, that a lot of, um, a lot of the work that you see, the thinking that you see coming out of an in, in, uh, Indian country recognizes that um, that uh, we're all connected now, essentially, and that we're going to um, evolve together or we're going to um, uh, or we're going to sink together. Yeah, I mean, protests and indigenous peoples are sort of at the forefront of the debates in the States at the moment, aren't they? Right. And I think, I mean, you see this, you see this, I think, all over the place in terms of the, um, you know, current, um, yeah, current environmental debates, debates about climate, a um, um, lot of thinking about the Anthropocene, sort of, you know, <laughs> um, where, 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 where are the fundamentally creative um, ideas going to be coming from that are going to sort of help us um, collectively move forward? And I, I, I mean, I, I certainly have a, have a bias towards the idea that um, looking to, it, it's time for the West to look more to indigenous communities and their traditions to sort of find some answers to these problems that we have created. Okay, well, that, that takes us to the second half, which in, in many ways is the focus of the study, isn't it? The idea of imagining sovereignty. And, and in particular, take on three writers who straddle a sort of um, a divide between theorist and uh, novelist or, or, or poet in, in some cases as well. Um, uh, Craig Womack, Elizabeth Cooklin, and Gerald Visner as your sort of principal uh, focuses for all those three chapters. Why, why of all the major thinkers in Native American studies, did you pick these three? What appealed to you about that? Um, well, I, I picked these three in large part because I think they've been conventionally understood as people who are completely opposed to one another. <laughs> and I wanted to try to, to highlight... Um, I wanted to try to highlight commonalities or ways at least in which that the, the differences between the way these three writers and thinkers um, reflect on colonialism, decolonization, decolonization uh, concepts like sovereignty and self-determination, that, that we're, we would be well served to look at, uh, to, to see them as, as sort of different approaches to the same problem that can be potentially complementary than seeing them as uh, 
you know, diametrically opposed thinkers who have to be chosen between. And I think there's been a, uh, I think a, there have been sort of, I, I would say, kind of two real central uh, critical debates in Native American literature in particular since the 1980s or so. And in a way, the, the, the second debate is a, is a kind of re, reformulation of the first one. But the first debate was largely a, a, an identity-centered debate, right? Uh, sort of, um, who, what does it mean to be American Indian? Um, what is authentic American Indian identity? Um, is it... Uh, is, is it um, a hybrid identity that involves kind of the combination of, for lack of a better term, traditional elements and sort of new elements that come in in the wake of colonial contact? Or is it a sort of adherence to something more um, uh, separate, so to speak, at, at the level of personal identity? Um, and that debate, I think, then translated into a more kind of political context in the wake of, of the work of people like Craig Womack, uh, people who, who I think style themselves as, or used to style themselves as literary nationalists. And the, the, the contrasting terms then became nationalists versus cosmopolitans, sort of people who, whose work seems to be rooted in very specific tribal traditions and reinterpreting those, uh, but, but, but focused at that level of, 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 of tribal tradition and writers who seem to draw more on an eclectic kind of palette of influences that include Western or European um, influences. And, and so then these debates got pretty sort of heated. Uh, and, and it really did turn into this kind of Manichaean, um, for a lot of people, this Manichaean um, uh, binary, right? That like, you know, you're either a traditionalist or you're a cosmopolitan. You've got to pick, pick a side. Um, and, and I think Cook Lin is someone who, uh, Womack is one of the fundamental theorists um, and writers in that nationalist tradition. Cook Lin is a sort of strident nationalist who herself has tended in her own writing to be very polemical in attacking other writers who she feels like are taking a political approach that she doesn't um, think is effective. And Visner would be one of the classic um, cosmopolitans, so to speak. So I wanted to look at, look at all three of them, uh, again, to highlight how if you understand what each is doing as, as a broad project, if you understand that each is grappling with the settler colonial political system, each is trying to create and innovate in dialogue with that system, and each is focusing on different um, legal structures or different tools to do that, that's, I think, a, a, a more interesting way of explaining their differences and also, I think, seeing them as different fingers on the same hand instead of two fists pointing at one another, if I can use that metaphor. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Womack and, and Cook Lin, Womack, I, th I think, um, to the extent that I have a kind of uh, critique of him in my book, I think what, what, what Womack has, has bumped up against is he's, um, he hasn't sort of settled, I think, in his own mind about what specific um, tactics he would want to use to um, to to challenge um, the settler state, he's he's kind of moved from different tactic to tactic, and he has very interesting insights in all those areas. But he's, I think, um, wrestling with what the political program is going to be. So, and that's fine. You know, I, I think that's that's that's. Um, I, I don't think there's any reason to sort of castigate the person for that. Um, so, what I, I think I start with him as someone who kind of is laying this foundation. Cook Lin is 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 heavily committed to treaties and to a sort of very uh, aggressive, um, uncompromising vision of nationalism as, as sort of separatism. Uh, Cook Lin wants, uh, you know, a, a Dakota um, nation to be its autonomous. I don't know if she would, would want it to be a state in a 
Western sense, but she she wants an autonomous, um, completely autonomous political community, and she roots that in in her reinterpretation of, of treaty law. Visner <clears throat> Visner is is a complicated case. Visner is is someone who's been deeply invested in constitutional reform um, uh, at the uh, um, at the White Earth Reservation, which is where he's uh, at the White Earth Nation, which is where he's 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 from, where's his roots. Um, but I, I think in that sense, what, what Visner is, 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 is highlighting with constitutional reform is, is a way of, I think, working a little more within, um, and within, uh, us political structures than somebody like, like Cook Lynn would be. Um, but again, what, what I tried, could, could you give a bit of background on, uh, on Visner? Cause I'm not sure everyone would be aware of his constitutional work. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so I think the, the, um, there are a number of, of uh, tribal nations within the United States that, that govern themselves to some degree autonomously under uh, tribal constitutions, right? And these constitutions were generally written in the 1930s and 1940s in the wake of a law called the Indian Reorganization Act. It was passed in 1934, part of the, a policy that was called the Indian New Deal at that time. Um, and um, the the constitutions that were written in the 30s and 40s, while they they represent, I guess you could say, progress from the real low point that um, indigenous communities were at uh, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they're they're very much documents that were kind of written under the supervision of the Department of the, of the Interior. They often um, very much kind of mirror uh, U.S. political structures, and in the case of the Anishinaabe, they're they're constitution, uh, the constitution for the, the, um, what was called the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, which is a, um, it's a collective, I guess, of five different, um, tribal nations reservations at this point in, in Minnesota. Um, that constitution really, I mean, to my eye reads more like a, like a chamber of commerce business plan (laughs) than a, than a political governance doc, uh, a real kind of political governance document. There's no uh, tribal judiciary uh, established there. Essentially, there's a, uh, uh, it's more or less a committee that sort of runs, runs the, the, the political operations. And, you know, it, starting in the 1960s, 70s, and certainly into the present, a number of tribal communities have, have engaged in processes of constitutional reform. And, and in White Earth, there was a move to, to do this Visner um, was centrally involved in a committee that uh, was tasked with drafting a new constitution. Um, that constitution was completed. It was passed uh, by um, a, 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 the constitutional convention, so to speak, that got together to create it. Then it went out for a referendum. Um, it was actually passed uh, and approved by the White Earth Nation itself. And so, but since then, it's been mired in um, legal and political controversy. Uh, it's been it's been opposed by other. Um, members of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, the other, other, um, some of the other nations um, in that, I guess you would say, confederation. Its current status is sort of it's not in force at this point, and and its current status is 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 uncertain. Um, but what what the committee that Visner was on, and and Visner had had a significant hand in this. He'll he'll downplay it, but you know he played a major role in in drafting this this document. That constitution is, is really interesting and profoundly innovative. It, it integrates <clears throat> Anishinaabe political concepts. Um, I'm not going to try to say the Anishinaabe words because I'll butcher them, but concepts that translate into English as something like the good life. It integrates those fundamentally into the political structure of the community. It um, it, it enshrines um, a, a kind of complicated system of um, 
uh, a kind of complicated justice system, which which would draw on sort of indigenous models of sort of jurisprudence. I think in the long run, models of restorative justice, I think, would, would become more significant. Um, there's a lot of things in it that are innovative um, in that respect. But it, but it, it also looks in certain ways like the U.S. Constitution. Um, it's this interesting, um, for lack of a better term, hybrid document. And then Visner uh, has been sort of incorporating in various ways references and kind of the spirit of that constitution in his fiction in recent years. And so when I write about Visner, that's largely what I'm, what I'm talking about is, is the ways in which the constitutional work that he did is, is um, part of, of his, the literary work that he's doing. And all of that work together is an attempt to, I think, um, change, change the political dynamic for his, for his community and sort of create new spaces for self-determination. And Cook and for Cook Lynn, Cook Lynn is is doing something similar in her own fiction. She writes fiction that is deeply rooted in her own um, investments in historic treaties between um, uh, between the the, the so called Great Sioux Nation and the United States government. Treaties going back to the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1850. Um, and and so and Cook Lynn is is I think um, <clears throat> what she tries to do is is to use fiction to get readers to see the land, um, see our relationship to the land, both um, on a kind of human level, spiritual level, um, uh, you know, personal level um, and political level in a way that is, is much more in line with the, um, the, the, the world that is imagined in those historic treaties. Okay. Yeah. I was struck when you were talking about, uh, the way that she forces readers to adopt particular strategies in reading her fictional works. Right, right. Well, I think, uh, I mean, part of what part of what this is, and, and I, I can't claim any sort of brilliant insight here. I think, I think uh, what I'm doing in a way is drawing from some very fundamental insights from formal literary criticism and reader response theory. But that, um, you know, any any piece of writing, um, any piece of well, we'll, we'll focus on fiction. Um, elicits our critical response in, in, in part from, because of what it says, but it, in large measure because of what it leaves out, right? <laughs> um, what, we, what we read, what we see um, causes us to, to, to ask certain kinds of questions um, and to, to recognize certain gaps in our knowledge and seek to sort of fill in those gaps in particular ways. And, and all writers, I think, um, work this way, right? All, all writers, no writer is going to tell you everything about a room, right? When they're describing that room, no fiction writer is going to do that. Um, maybe maybe uh, Henry James will come closest to it. Um, but what they'll do is they'll, they will focus your attention on, on certain things. And a, you know, a, 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 I think a, a thoughtful reader, a, a well-trained reader, so to speak, or a, a, an attentive reader will start asking questions. Why, why am I looking at this? Why am I being asked to pay attention to that object? Why that conversation, right? This is, this is what we do as, as critical readers. This is, what I think, what we teach people as, as literature professors. And what Cook Lynn does is Cook Lynn, I think, often she, she expands those gaps, right? She, she leaves those silences more glaring and more open than many other writers do. She sort of challenges you as a reader. She confronts you with, with a clear recognition that, that there's something fundamental about this community that you're looking at or this space that you're looking at, this landscape, that you don't 
understand sufficiently just by what's on the page in front of you. You have to go further to sort of make sense of that. So I think in, in her, uh, I start off my, my, my section on her by talking about um, uh, the poem that she uses as an epigraph in her short story collection, The, uh, the Power of Stories. And the poem is, is on the surface, it's a very um, uh, simple uh, portrait of, of a landscape, right? And you're, you're looking at um, a landscape um, along a river, uh, you're looking at high tension wires, and, and you're, you're thinking about that place. Um, but the, the, the poem really, I think, leaves you as a reader with all sorts of questions about sort of where are we in place? Where are we on this river? What river is it? Why are these high tension wires here? What's going on? And what you do when you sort of dive more deeply is you realize that what Cooklin is writing about is that she's writing about um, she's writing about uh, the the stringing of of national uh, the national electric grid. Uh, she's writing at the the development of hydroelectric power along the Missouri River, and those projects displaced her own home community, her 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 uh, where she, the, the community where her ancestors grew up or had had lived was flooded essentially by dam building to create this hydroelectric power system. And Cooklin, I think in her fiction and in her poetry, is always sort of pushing readers to dive more deeply into that history and to understand what an indigenous person sees when they look out at that sort of colonized landscape. And I think her hope is uh, on some level that that, that um, the more we can develop a shared understanding of place, the more we're going to be brought back to um, these sort of earlier moments where there was perhaps potential, right, to, to create a sort of shared um, understanding of, and I don't want to say possession of, but a shared uh, ability to sort of live on the land. Um, is that, does, that, does that answer your question, James? I think. Yeah, that absolutely does. And uh, yeah, there's so many other things I want to ask you about and where the time is starting to press slightly. And I want to get particularly to the last chapter of the book um, because you go into the situation in California, which in many ways really sort of tests the complexity of this idea of sovereignty that you've been uh, talking about throughout the book. Um, I was wondering if you could briefly sort of outline what's particularly unique about the Californian situation uh, and uh, some of the things you talk about there about sovereignty in that chapter. Right. Well, I mean, well, California is, is a, is a um, California, you've, you've got a, a contemporary context that's, that's complicated in the sense that you have um, many, many um, tribal communities, uh, some federally recognized, some still seeking federal recognition, some state recognized, um, but you have an enormous number of tribal communities of enormously varying size and land base, um, you have there. There are recognized, uh, federally recognized tribes in California that have five people in them, uh, and have and there are federally recognized tribes that own fifteen acres of land. There are also tribal communities with larger land bases. Um, we have some of the wealthiest uh, tribal communities in the United States because of some of the casinos out here, but we also have some enormously poor communities. Um, but so essentially what you have, though, is you have a, a, a context in which Cook Lin's vision of a treaty based nationalism just doesn't work. Essentially, uh, very few uh, tribes in uh, or nations in California signed treaties with the U.S. government. Um, there were actually a series of treaties signed right when California became a state in the 1850s 
Those were taken back to Congress, never ratified, um, and only discovered, discovered, quote unquote, in the uh, early 1900s. Um, interestingly enough, the, the uh, California tribes that signed them thought that they were enforced and had actually um, relocated in many cases to, to uh, uh, live up to the, the provisions of the treaties. Um, but essentially, those tribes ended up in a kind of, in a kind of claims process to get financial restitution for um, the violation of those treaties. But so essentially, um, you know, treaty nationalism doesn't really work in California. Um, at least, at least, it, it wouldn't work in the way that it that it, were, that it works, or it might potentially work for uh, for Cook Lynn and for the the Dakota. Um, constitutionalism is is complicated too because uh, many of the tribal nations in California don't have constitutions now. Um, uh, you know, some some would want them and some might not want them. So what what you need in a California context, I think, is even more of a spirit of innovation. You need you need to sort of think about. Um, any strategy that you can imagine that allows you to assert and extend your abilities, uh, your capacity for self-determination. Um, I think in, in a California context, um, a lot of the California tribes, I, I think, tend to be a little more litigious than, um, than, than uh, nations in other parts of the country, in part because I think they recognize that working with the legal system sometimes is their best strategy. The uh, this isn't in the book, but the, the Agua Caliente, who I do talk about, um, that's that um, I'm actually talking about that community and somebody writing out of that community. Uh, this is in, in Palm Springs. They are engaged in a, uh, a lawsuit right now over control of um, uh, water rights underneath the reservation. This is water that's used heavily by the city of Palm Springs. And at the moment, they're prevailing in that lawsuit, which is going to lead to a very interesting dynamic where if they if they continue to prevail here, um, there's going to be some kind of power sharing political arrangement between the water district that serves that incredibly wealthy community and the Agua Caliente nation. Um, that's that's a different kind of sovereignty, right? It's going to, if, if that's not going to devolve into um, a destructive contest, what you're going to have is, I think, a redefinition of a sense of kind of collective peoplehood in terms of um, the uh, connection that desert dwelling humans have to um, that land base and that water base. And that's going to be driven, I think, by um, litigation in the U.S. court system by, by a tribal nation. So um, again, that's a slight digression because that's not, not in the book. Um, but what I do talk about in the book are, are, again, I think ways in which in California, you, you have to have this sort of spirit of experimentation to try to find new ways to assert and reassert um, the ability to, to, to be a self-determined community. And the example I do focus on is, is um, uh, an, un, uh, an out-of-print work by um, a man named Francisco Potencio, who was the, um, the SIB would be the traditional term, the, the, the chief, so to speak, of um, uh, the Agua Caliente Cuya, the um, uh, in Palm Springs band. And, and uh, what he does in his book, uh, the story is called Legends and Stories of the Palm Springs Indians. What he does in his book in interesting ways, he tells a, a number of traditional stories, but if you look really deeply, what he actually is doing is remapping the landscape. Um, a lot of what he's doing in his in his book is what um, the linguistic anthropologist Keith Bassa would call place making. He's tying place names, physical geography to narratives in a way that maps out a fundamentally different understanding of shared space. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you, you read his, his book and, and what you realize is uh, there's, there's a, a section that you're reading in and all of a sudden you have this, I think, flash of 
of uh, recognition that what he's doing in, way, in a way is walking around the borders of traditional Kuwait territory and putting down markers, sort of showing what those bar- boundaries are. But then within the framework of that book, he is sharing that understanding with um, a broad readership. And he, and he even has um, some pieces in that uh, collection where he talks about integrating the um, uh, Anglo pioneers who came into the ter- this territory into that landscape. So what he's doing, I think, is modeling um, uh, modeling a, a way of, of recognizing the presence and persistence of the Kuya people in this landscape and, and, and pointing towards ways that that presence and um, I don't want to say ownership, but yeah, but that, that, that um, uh, place in the land um, is persistent, needs to be recognized, but also can be used then as a base for finding collaborative ways to exist together. And, and I think if, if I had known about, you know, if, if the, uh, the, the water lawsuit had been going on when I had um, published the book, I probably would have brought that in, I think, as an example of how that can start to play out in interesting ways um, that in a way seems very disconnected from this book from the 1940s, which is telling traditional stories. But I think in, in other ways, um, very much uh, embodies that ethos that you see um, somebody like Potencio talking about. So um, how's that, James? Does that, does it give you a, that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, on, on some sort of, uh, final thoughts and you, and you do raise this in the last couple of pages you, you made a very good case in this book for considering sovereignty as discrete, as driven um, by uh, considerations of praxis, um, of, of uh, and of being very sort of hyper individualized to each tribe. You know the, the different circumstances shaping the meaning of sovereignty. So how can that then work in a pan-Indian context? Do you think that's that's complicated? It's, it's interesting because one of the uh, I was reading a, a review of, of, of the book. Uh, a few weeks ago. And, and the, the, the person who reviewed it um, kind of at the end of the review made this comment that like, oh, well, I, I wish Carlson would come out with a program. Like what's, what's, what's the plan he advocates <laughs> uh, going forward. And, and I think uh, on the one hand, um, I mean, I, I would, I would be loath to do that for a variety of reasons. I think as an allied scholar, it's not my place to, to lay out the plan. Um, B, I don't think there is a plan. And I think that's part of what I point out at the end of the book. Um, I guess to, to, to speak to your, to your broader question, um, I think there's always a balance, right, between the um, the, the the local political um, needs, right, uh, the local imperatives, and and sort of broader um, broader intersections, broader um, broader strategies, broader ways in which people can collaborate. Um, you know, I don't know that I know exactly where it's going to go, right? Um, I, I think. Um, Certainly, self-determination as an umbrella concept, again, inflected in different ways, um, is at this point working to a degree in a U.S. context, right? That, that does become a kind of um, point of connection for a lot of tribal communities. Um, it doesn't necessarily work in exactly the same way when you cross the border, however, into, you know, to Canada, where you have a, a different history. Um, the sort of treaty status of Canadian First Nations isn't the same. Um, you know, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian Constitution sort of uh, incorporates Indigenous communities in a different way than the U.S. Constitution does. So, um, I mean, I, while, while I think broadly speaking, a concept like self-determination has, has, um, has connections, uh, 
provides the possibility for connections. Again, the way that gets inflected in, in local ways is going to be different. I, my, my guess is, James, is that I think where we're probably headed in terms of, of a pan-Indigenous discourse is um, heading back into or heading in further into international law uh, and sort of some of the directions that that um, UNDRIP is taking us. Um, I, I think I think that we're going to see a or what I'd like to see, I think, is is a resurgence of creative thinking about intersections between indigenous legal perspectives and going back to some of the early kind of pre-liberal property centered uh, roots of, of uh, Western natural law as a, as a tradition and see if there are ways there in which you can find uh, points of intersection. Um, but I think, uh, I think what you're, what you're going to see is real wrangling over the next few decades about how you take the kind of legal framework that you find in something like UNDRIP and make it work in a way that doesn't undermine key indigenous um, values. And I guess the, the specific area there that's, that's complicated is that, uh, you know, the UN declaration um, is, is a human rights document and it's, it's, um, it's attempting to kind of uh, take indigenous worldviews, values, and needs and, and blend them in some ways with a kind of human rights discourse that is a little more, um, that is in its roots is, is more tied to individual rights. Um, that said, you know, like within, within the same kind of uh, language uh, and, and sort of thought structure that UNDRIP comes out of, you have, um, you have nations in um, Latin America declaring rivers to be people with rights. So I think you have, you have innovation already happening sort of within that framework. But I think what needs to be worked out is how does that international, how does the international law framework how is how can that be made to work as a a, a tool for pan indigenous activism and political collect, uh, political uh, collective action um, in a way that doesn't then undermine also I think some of the more discrete kind of local um, activity that's going to go on that might use other concepts I mean I think I think what you see this in in the United U.S. context um, you will have tribal nations that are are uh, willing to and have supported um, investments in that sort of international law discourse, that kind of UN-centered discourse, but are also at the same time, uh, you know, filing suit against, uh, uh, against um, you know, developers or power companies in federal court, you know, and working on constitutional reform. So I think, I think, um, I think you're going to see, you're going to see a mix of those things over time. Hey, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, a wonderful talk. Um, and the book, again, for everyone, is Imagining Sovereignty by David J. Carson. Thank you, David. Thanks, James. This was, this was wonderful. I had a great time.